Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. He was falsely accused. He was convicted. He was stoned to death. And yet, when he was ushered into heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself stood out of respect for this first Christian martyr. And today, we're going to look at the account of the death of the first Christian in history for the sake of the gospel. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffers. Every single day in this world, brave Christians refuse to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ, even when the consequences are dire. And their courage inspires us to remain fully committed to God whenever resistance comes our way. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shares how to respond to persecution. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Sometimes I read the New Testament stories about the apostles, and their stories unfold like a best-selling novel. And it's not fiction. But the twist and the plot, the confrontation against evil forces, the infusion of supernatural power, it's truly spellbinding. Today on Pathway to Victory, I'm going to show you one of those exciting storylines. I'm teaching from Acts chapter 6. In this section of the Bible, we find a man who's become celebrated as the first Christian martyr. As we examine his life, we'll begin to understand that God empowers anyone who's willing to walk with him. Here's the bottom line. No person and no circumstance can prevail against the power of God. To help you fully grasp this important lesson, I want to send you my brand new book called Unstoppable Power. It coincides with this new teaching series in the book of Acts. I'm pleased to send you a copy when you give a generous gift to the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. For a few more days, your gift will be doubled in size because of this $500,000 matching challenge. This means that your gift of, say, $100 will become $200. A generous gift of $500 becomes $1,000. This has been a challenging year, I know, financially speaking, and we're trusting God to replenish our resources through visionary friends just like you. Please take advantage of this moment and give generously to the matching challenge while there's still time. Now, it's time to get started with our study. I titled today's message, The First Christian Martyr. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Now, this story of Stephen that is found in the last part of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 can really be divided into three parts. First of all, there is the detention of Stephen. Secondly, the defense of Stephen. And finally, the death of Stephen. Let's look, first of all, at his imprisonment, his arrest, beginning in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Stephen was full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen rose up and argued with Stephen. Verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And so they secretly induced men to say. That word induced, parabolo in Greek, 
means they paid off some witnesses to make a false accusation. And so they arrested him. And then when they had him in custody, they expanded the charges in verses 13 and 14. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against this holy place, that is the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this temple and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And now we're ready for the defense, the self-defense of Stephen. Remember, there's no chapter division in the original text. This is all one story when we get to chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, heard the charges and he says to Stephen, are these things true? Verse 1. Look at verse 2. And Stephen said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. The point is a simple one. Don't call me unfaithful because I'm speaking about Gentile blessing. That has been God's purpose from the very beginning of time. And Israel was the instrument God used to bring blessing to the world. Next, notice Stephen's defense against slander. Remember the charge against Stephen that he had blasphemed Moses and he had tried to change the law of Moses. Well, Stephen said, let's look at that for a minute. You want to talk about Moses? Look what your Jewish forefathers did to Moses. They weren't always a part of his fan club. When he tried to lead an exodus after killing that Egyptian soldier, nobody followed him. You all rejected him. And when he finally, 40 years later, became the leader of the Exodus, all your Jewish forefathers did was gripe and complain for 40 years in the wilderness. And you want to talk about the law? You think, I'm altering or changing? Remember, when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, your Jewish forefathers were at the base of the mountains breaking the very law Moses was receiving. Acts 7.41 says, at that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to that idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. And by the way, you think the law is so holy? Why are you breaking it right now, Stephen said. Exodus 20.16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbors. He said, as long as we're talking about Moses, let's also remember, Stephen said, that Moses himself said there was someone greater coming later than himself, the Messiah. Acts 7.37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And then finally, the climax of his message, Stephen's defense against anarchy, Isaiah the prophet. Remember the final charge against Stephen was, you're trying to destroy the temple. The not-so-subtle implication was, if you're a follower of Jesus, you must be an insurrectionist as well. How does he respond to this is really bold? Look at verse 48. Stephen says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes from Isaiah, heaven is God's throne. Earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? You know what Stephen is saying? 
he's saying, guys, the temple's a nice place. It's an important place, but it's not that important. Don't you realize God doesn't just dwell in the temple? The temple's not big enough to contain God. The whole world is God's temple, and he fills all of it. Quit fixating on this temple and start fixating on the God who dwells in this temple and throughout the world. Now, that was Stephen's defense. How does he sum up his message? Doug, you know the summation of that message is very important, how an attorney sums up his argument is all important. Well, he gives a summary beginning in verse 51. And will you notice, it's no little namby-pamby, oh, can't we all just get along with one another? Listen to how he addresses these men who have the right to order his execution. In verse 51, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your forefathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you do not keep it. I love that boldness from Stephen. He wasn't backing down. He knew they could take his life, but they couldn't take his soul. He doesn't back down whatsoever. And so how do they react to that? Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Literally, they were sawn in two in their hearts. That's the power of the word of God. Just what happened at Pentecost, they were pierced in their hearts and cried out, what shall we do? That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, somebody has said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. That's true about God's Word. God's Word is like a laser. It's a light that softens some people's hearts and makes them open to receiving the forgiveness Christ offers. But for other people... The word of God hardens them. They harden their rebellion against God, and that's exactly what happened here. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. Does that word gnashing sound familiar? It's a word Jesus used to describe the reality of hell. He described hell as a place of eternal weeping and wailing and the gnashing, the grinding of teeth. You gnash your teeth when you are angry. And they were angry. They began gnashing their teeth. And hell, unbelievers will spend eternity grinding, gnashing their teeth out of anger. Anger toward God for having dispatched them to such a horrible place. Anger at themselves for having refused or neglected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They begin gnashing their teeth. Look at verse 55, the reaction of Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, underline that, standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Some people use this story as a basis 
for what has become known as near-death experiences where somebody, you know, supposedly dies and they go to heaven and get a tour of heaven and they come back to life and write a best-selling book on the subject. Now, I don't know if that happens or not. I do know the only two times in the Bible in the New Testament where that happened, John, and we don't even know that he died. He was more in a trance. He had a vision on the island of Patmos. But even then, God limited the information he could share with us in the book of Revelation. We know that Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when he was caught up into the third heaven and saw things, he said, they were things too wonderful to describe, and God forbade me from saying a word about it. I can never say a word about it. But what I want to notice here is this is not one of those instances, because when Stephen saw the uh, opening of heaven and the Son of Man standing, Jesus standing there, he hadn't died yet. This was before he died, before he was stoned, that he looked up and saw the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God the Father. And when they heard Stephen claim he was seeing Jesus, verse 57 says, the men covered their ears. They didn't want to hear it and rushed toward him to take him outside of the city gates to stone him. Now look at verse 58. When they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him. Now when we think of stoning somebody, we think of people picking up a handful of gravel or little rocks and, you know, kind of pelting them with it. That wasn't stoning. Stoning was a gruesome way to die. When people were stoned to death, they were taken outside the city. They were stripped naked. They were placed on a scaffold 10 feet above the ground or above a pit, and they were dropped into that pit. Now, if the fall did not kill them, then the first accuser against the accused would come and take a large boulder and drop it on the head or the heart of the victim. If that didn't kill them, then they stood him up, and as he stood, they would take large rocks and start stoning him. And that's what went on here. The Bible says the witnesses laid aside their robes. They took off their robes and able to be able to throw for longer and larger rocks. They took off their robes and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first appearance in the New Testament of Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul when he was converted, as we'll see next time on the road to Damascus. But he was there, not just as a witness. The fact that they laid their robes at his feet, that was a sign of authority. Remember, we saw earlier in Acts when people came and gave their gifts, they laid them where? At the apostles' feet. That was a sign of denoting somebody's authority. It's very possible that Saul was presiding over this stoning of Stephen. Very, very interesting that uh, God would have him in that place. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar to you? It's what the Lord had said from the cross. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then falling 
on his knees. Now, that means he must have been standing. He was a strong man to have endured all this, still standing. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again, does that remind you of something? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Stephen had no power to absolve them of their guilt. Only God could do that. But he was saying his last request, his last prayer before he died was that those who were persecuting him would find the forgiveness that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers. Little did he know that the man who had ordered his stoning, presided over it, Saul of Tarsus, would soon be the recipient of that prayer request that he would become the greatest missionary the world had ever known. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, Stephen fell asleep. What does that mean, he fell asleep? That's a euphemism in the Bible for dying. When a Christian dies, he falls asleep. Now, not his spirit. Our spirit, when we die, immediately goes into the presence of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul would write, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. When the Bible talks about falling asleep, it means our body, our physical body falls asleep, awaiting the great resurrection at the rapture, the first resurrection when we receive those new bodies from God. But make no mistake about it. When a Christian dies, his spirit, the real part of him, immediately begins experiencing the eternal blessing of heaven. In the same way, when an unbeliever dies, he doesn't cease to exist, he doesn't go to sleep, he begins immediately experiencing the horrors of hell. So how do you know that, pastor? Because Jesus said that in Luke chapter 16. He told the story about two men who died. The poor man, Lazarus, who was ushered into heaven, not because he was poor, but because he was a man of faith. And then we have the rich man who died and went to Hades, to hell. The Bible says Lazarus immediately was comforted the moment that he died in the presence of Abraham. But the rich man, remember, as soon as he was in hell, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on my soul, for I am in agony in these flames. Whatever decision we make about Christ in this life, the result of that decision we experience immediately when we die. Now, I want you to notice something here. Twice in this passage, Luke says that Stephen, Stephen saw the Lord standing at the right hand of God. Why do I emphasize that? Because every other time in the Bible, when it talks about Jesus in heaven, he is always seated at the right hand of God the Father. And there's a reason for that. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, the writer says, every priest stands daily ministering and, off and offering time after time the same sacrifices which sin can never, take, can never be taken away. Every priest would always stand when he went into the temple. There were no seats in the temple. Why is that? Why would the priest have to stand? Because his work was never finished. 
The priest came in month after month, year after year, offering sacrifice after sacrifice because the blood of goats and bulls was incapable of taking away our, our sin. It was pointing to a sacrifice that would come later, a once-for-all sacrifice that would be offered for us. That's why the priest was never allowed to sit. His offerings were perpetual. But notice what verse 12 says. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus sat down means the priesthood was over. Love's redeeming work had been done. It was finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. And that's why the Bible talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So why does Jesus stand at this point? I'll tell you why I think he stands he stands out of respect, out of respect for this man, the first person in the history of the church to give his life for the sake of the gospel. Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He stood to welcome this first Christian martyr named Stephen. You know my pattern by now. You know I usually close a message like this with three practical principles or two timeless truths for all of us. I'm not going to do that today because as I have been reading this passage and studying it over and over again this week, there's one question that has kept running through my mind. And the question is this. Just as Jesus Christ stood up out of respect for Stephen, is it possible for us to live a life so pleasing to God that when the time of death comes for us, we see the Lord Jesus Christ standing up to welcome us home? Isn't that a goal worth pursuing? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. My hope, my prayer is that Stephen becomes a motivation for all of us. May we become courageous for Christ. And until he comes again, may we shine the bright light of his truth into the dark places of our world. This is what Pathway to Victory is all about. Together, we are boldly standing against the forces of evil in our world. We do so not in our own strength, but through the power of His Holy Spirit and under the authority of the Bible. You know, Satan's goal is very clear. He wants to destroy the church. He wants you and me to shut up, and he will do whatever it takes to keep us from proclaiming the gospel. But Satan is no match for God's unstoppable power. 
For this reason and more, I'd like to send you a copy of my brand new book on this topic. It's called Unstoppable Power, and it's based on the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. A copy is yours when you give a generous gift to the matching challenge. We're reaching the crescendo of this matching challenge, and with your help, we will amass an arsenal of resources to deploy against the enemy in the coming months. Your generous gift today will make all the difference. So, right now, your gift of $50 becomes $100. Your gift of $1,000 would become $2,000. Some are able to do much more. The goal is to reach $500,000 before July 4th. Collectively, as a community of supporters, I believe we can reach and even surpass this goal. It might surprise you to know how many folks rely on Pathway to Victory but never reach out to us. Please let this be the day you step forward and give whatever amount God places on your heart. You'll be glad you did, as together we pierce the darkness with the light of God's Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Jeffress called Unstoppable Power. Call us toll-free, 866-999-2965, or visit ptv.org. And when your gift is $100 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the Unstoppable Power teaching series, along with a helpful study guide. And remember, because of our Unstoppable Power matching challenge, your gift to Pathway to Victory will be matched and therefore doubled in impact. So be sure to get in touch right away. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online to ptv.org. You can also send your donation by mail right to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Some Christians assume evangelism is a job that's reserved for pastors. So you might be surprised to learn that the very first evangelist was just a layperson. Hear a message called Portrait of an Effective Evangelist. That's Wednesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.